6. Bears the same totem name, and carries the same badge or family crest, as himself, a man descended from the crane, and whose family name is Crane, cannot marry a woman whose family name is Crane, he must marry a woman of the wolf, or turtle, or swan, or other name, and her children keep her family title, not his, thus, if a crane man marries a swan woman, the children are swans, and none of them may marry a swan, they must marry turtles, wolves, or what not, and their children, again, are turtles, or wolves, thus there is necessarily an eternal come and go of all the animal names known in a district, as civilization advances these rules grow obsolete, people take their names from the father, as among ourselves, finally the dwellers in a given district, having become united into a local tribe, are apt to drop the various animal titles and to adopt, as the name of the whole tribe, the name of the chief, or of the predominating family, let us imagine a district of some 20 miles in which there are crane, wolf, turtle, and swan families, long residents together, and common interests, have welded them into a local tribe, the chief is of the wolf family, and the tribe, sinking family differences and family names, calls itself the wolves, such tribes were probably, in the beginning, the inhabitants of the various Egyptian towns which severally worshipped the wolf, or the sheep, or the crocodile, and abstained religiously except on certain sacrificial occasions from the flesh of the animal that gave them its name. It has taken us long to reach the sacred mice of Greek religion, but we are now in a position to approach their august divinity. We have seen that the sun worship superseded, without abolishing, the tribal pecaresses in Peru, and that the wood cause, or images, of the sacred animals were admitted under the roof of the Temple of the Sun. Now it is recognized that the temples of the Smintian Apollo contained images of sacred mice among other animals, and our argument is that here, perhaps, we have another example of the Peruvian religious evolution, just as, in Peru, the tribes adored vile and filthy animals, just as the solar worship of the Incas subordinated these, just as the wakas of the beasts remained in the temples of the Peruvian sun, so, we believe, the tribes along the Mediterranean coasts had, at some very remote prehistoric period, their animal pecaresses, these were subordinated to the religion to some extent solar of Apollo, and the wood cause, or animal idols, survived in Apollo's temples, if this theory be correct, we shall probably find the mass, for example, revered as a sacred animal in many places, this would necessarily follow. If the marriage customs which we have described ever prevailed on Greek soil, and scattered the mouse name far and wide, 188 traces of the mouse families, and of adoration, if adoration there was of the mouse, would linger on in the following shapes, one places would be named from mice, and mice would be actually held sacred in themselves, to the mouse name would be given locally to the god who superseded the mouse, three the figure of the mouse would be associated with the god, and used as a badge or a kind of crest, or local mark, in places where the mouse has been a venerated animal, for finally, myths would be told to account for the sacredness of a creature so undignified, let us take these considerations in their order, one if there were a local mice tribes, deriving their name from the worshipful mouse, certain towns settled by these tribes would retain a reverence for mice, in Crisa, a town of the Trode, according to Heraclides Ponticus, mice were held sacred, the local name for mouse being Greek. Many places bore this mouse name. According to Strabo, 180 this is precisely what would have occurred had the mouse totem, and the mouse stock, 
been widely distributed. 108 See the Scoliast 109A mentions Smintus as a place in the Trode. Strabo speaks of two places deriving their name from Smintus, or Mass, near the Smintian Temple, and others near Larissa, in Rhodes and Lindus. The Mass place name recurs, and in many other districts Greek. Strabo X 486 names Koreshus, and Poesa, in CEOs, among the other places which had Smintian temples, and, presumably, were once centers of tribes named after the Mass. Here, then, are a number of localities in which the Mass Apollo was adored, and where the old Mass name lingered, that the mice were actually held sacred in their proper persons we learn from Ilion, the dwellers in Hamexitus of the Trode worship mice, says Ilion, in the temple of Apollo Smintheus, mice are nourished, and food is offered to them, at the public expense, and white mice dwell beneath the altar. 109b In the same way we found that the Peruvians federal their sacred beasts on what they usually saw them eat. To the second point in our argument has already been sufficiently demonstrated. The mouse named Smintheus was given to Apollo in all the places mentioned by Strabo, and many others. 3. The figure of the mouse will be associated with the god, and used as a badge, or crest, or local mark, in places where the mouse has been a venerated animal. The passage already quoted from Ilion informs us that there stood an effigy of the mouse beside the tripod of Apollo, in Crisa, according to Strabo XII. 604, the statue of Apollo Smintheus had a mouse beneath his foot. The mouse on the tripod of Apollo is represented on a bas-relief illustrating the plague, and the offerings of the Greeks to Apollo Smintheus, as described in the first book of the Iliad. 110a The mouse is a not uncommon local badge or crest in Greece. The animals whose figures are stamped on coins, like the Athenian owl, are the most ancient marks of cities. It is a plausible conjecture that, just as the Iroquois when they signed treaties with the Europeans used their totems bear, wolf, and turtle as seals, 110b so the animals on archaic Greek city coins represented crests or badges which, at some far more remote period, had been totems, the archives, according to Pollux. 110c stamped the mouse on their coins, 110d as there was a temple of Apollo Smintheus in Tenedos, we naturally hear of a mouse on the coins of the island, 111a Galzio has published one of these mouse coins, the people of Metapontum stamped their money with a mouse gnawing an ear of corn, the people of Kumi employed a mouse dormant, Fowley fancied that certain mice on Roman medals might be connected with the family of Muse, but this is rather guesswork. 111b We have now shown traces, at least, of various ways in which an early tribal religion of the mouse the mouse Pecarisa, as the Peruvians said may have been perpetuated, when we consider that the superseding of the mouse by Apollo must have occurred, if it did occur, long before Homer, we may rather wonder that the mouse left his mark on Greek religion so long, we have seen mice revered, a god with a mouse name, the mouse name recurring in many places, the Wicon or idol, of the mouse preserved in the temples of the god, and the mouse batch used in several widely severed localities, it remains for to examine the myths about mice, these, in our opinion, were probably told to account for the presence of the waka of the mouse in temples, and for the occurrence of the animal in religion, and his connection with Apollo, a singular mouse myth, narrated by Herodotus, is worth examining for reasons which will appear later. Though the events are said to have happened on Egyptian soil, 111c according to Herodotus, one Sethos, a priest of Hephaestus Ta, was king of Egypt, 
he had disgraced the military class, and he found himself without an army when Sennacherib invaded his country, Sethos fell asleep in the temple, and the god, appearing to him in a vision, told him that divine succor would come to the Egyptians, 112 a in the night before the battle, field mice gnawed the quivers and shield handles of the foe, who fled on finding themselves thus disarmed, and now, says Herodotus, there standeth the stone image of this king in the temple of Hephaestus, and in the hand of the image of Mouse, and there is this inscription, Let whoso look at on me be pious. Professor Sace 112 beholds that there was no such person as Sethos, but that the legend is evidently Egyptian, not Greek, and the name of Sennacherib, as well as the fact of the Assyrian attack, is correct. The legend also, though Egyptian, is an echo of the biblical account of the destruction of the Assyrian army, an account which omits the mice, as to the mice, here, says Professor Sace, we have to do again with the Greek Dragolinsic, the story of Sethos was attached to the statue of some deity which was supposed to hold a mouse in its hand, it must have been easy to verify this supposition, but Mr. Sace adds, mice were not sacred in Egypt, nor were they used as symbols, or found on the monuments, to this remark we may suggest some exceptions, Apparently this one mouse was found on the monuments. Wilkinson III, 264 says mice do occur in the sculptures, but they were not sacred. Rats, however, were certainly sacred, and as little distinction is taken, in myth, between rats and mice as between rabbits and hares. The rat was sacred to Array, the sun god, and like all totems was not to be eaten. 113a This association of the rat and the sun cannot but remind us of Apollo and his mouse. According to Strabo, a certain city of Egypt did worship the shrew mouse. The Athribidae, or dwellers in Crocodilopolis, are the people to whom he attributes this cult, which he mentions XBII. 813 Among the other local animal worships of Egypt, 113b Several porcelain examples of the field mouse sacred to Horus commonly called Apollo by the Greeks may be seen in the British Museum, that rats and field mice were sacred in Egypt. Then, we may believe on the evidence of the ritual, of Strabo, and of many relics of Egyptian art. Herodotus, moreover, is credited when he says that the statue had a mouse on its hand. Elsewhere, it is certain that the story of mice gnawing the bowstrings occurs frequently as an explanation of mouse worship. One of the Trojan mouse stories ran that emigrants had set out in prehistoric times from Crete. The oracle advised them to settle wherever they were attacked by the children of the soil. At Hamexitus in the Trojan, they were assailed in the night by mice, which ate all that was edible of their armor and bowstrings. The colonists made up their mind that these mice were the children of the soil. Settled there and adored the mouse Apollo. 114a A myth of this sort may either be a story invented to explain the mouse name, or a mouse tribe, like the red Indian wolves, or crows, may actually have been settled on the spot, and may even have resisted invasion. 114b Another myth of the trout accounted for the worship of the mouse Apollo on the hypothesis that he had once freed the land from mice, like the Pied Piper of Hamelin whose pipe still serviceable is said to have been found in his grave by men who were digging a mine. 114 see stories like these. Stories attributing some great deliverance to the mouse, or some deliverance from mice to the god, would naturally spring up among people puzzled by their own worship of the mouse god or of the mouse. We have explained the religious character of mice as the relics of a past age in which the mouse had been a totem and mouse family names had been widely diffused, that there are, 
and have been. Mystotems and mass family names among Semitic stocks round the Mediterranean is proved by Professor Robertson Smith, 115 A. The mass is an Edomite name, apparently a stock name, as the Jerboa and another mass name are among the Arabs. The same name occurs in Judah, where totemism exists. The members of each stock either do not eat the ancestral animal at all, or only eat him on rare sacrificial occasions. The totem of a hostile stock may be eaten by way of insult. In the case of the mass, Isaiah seems to refer to one or other of these practices by They that sanctify themselves, and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination, and the mass, shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. This is like the Egyptian prohibition to eat the abominable that island taboo or forbidden red of array. If the unclean animals of Israel were originally the totems of each clan, then the mass was a totem. 115 Before the chosen people were forbidden to eat the weasel, and the mass, and the tortoise after his kind, that unclean beasts, beasts not to be eaten, were originally totems. Professor Robertson Smith infers from Ezekiel VII. 10. 11. Where we find seventy of the elders of Israel that island the heads of houses were shipping in a chamber which had on its walls the figures of all manner of unclean taboo creeping things, and quadrupeds, even all the idols of the house of Israel. Some have too hastily concluded that the mouse was a sacred animal among the neighboring Philistines. After the Philistines had captured the ark and set it in the house of Dagon, the people were smitten with disease. They therefore, in accordance with a well-known savage magical practice, made five golden representations of the diseased part, and five golden mice, as a trespass offering to the Lord of Israel, and so restored the ark. Such votive offerings are common still in Catholic countries, and the mice of gold by no means prove that the Philistines had ever worshipped mice. Turning to India from the Mediterranean basin, and the Aryan, Semitic, and Egyptian tribes on its coasts, we find that the mouse was the sacred animal of Rudra, the mouse, Rudra is thy beast, says the Yajurveda, as rendered by Graman in his Apollo Smentheus. Graman recognizes in Rudra a deity with most of the characteristics of Apollo. In later Indian mythology, the mouse is an attribute of Ganka, who, like Apollo Smentheus, is represented in art with his foot upon a mouse. Such are the chief appearances of the mouse in ancient religion. If he really was a Semitic totem, it may, perhaps, we argued that his prevalence in connection with Apollo is the result of a Semitic leaven in Hellenism. Hellenic invaders may have found Semitic mouse tribes at home, and incorporated the alien stock deity with their own Apollo worship. In that case the mouse, while still originally a totem, would not be an Aryan totem, but probably the myths and rites of the mouse, and their diffusion, are more plausibly explained on our theory than on that of Degabernades, the pagan sun god crushes under his foot the mouse of night. When the cat's away, the mice may play, the shadows of night dance when the moon is absent. 117a This is one of the quaintest pieces of mythological logic. Obviously, when the cat the moon is away, the mice the shadows cannot play, there is no light to produce a shadow, as usually chances. The scholars who try to resolve all the features of myth into physical phenomena do not agree among themselves about the mouse, while the mouse is the night, according to N.D. Gubernades. In Graman's opinion the mouse is the lightning. He argues that the lightning was originally regarded by the Aryan race as the flashing tooth of a beast, especially of a mouse. Afterwards men came to identify the beast with his teeth. And, behold, 
the lightning and the mass are convertible mythical terms. Now it is perfectly true that savages regard many elemental phenomena, from eclipses to the rainbow, as the result of the action of animals. The rainbow is a serpent, 117b thunder is caused by the thunderbird, who has actually been shot in Dakota, and who is familiar to the Zulus, while rain is the milk of a heavenly cow an idea recurring in the Zendavesta. But it does not follow because savages believe in these meteorological beasts that all the beasts in myth were originally meteorological. Man raised a serpent to the skies, perhaps, but his interest in the animal began on earth, not in the clouds. It is excessively improbable, and quite unproved, that any race ever regarded lightning as the flashes of a mouse's teeth. The hypothesis is a chedestri, like the opposite hypothesis about the mouse of night. In these, and all the other current theories of the Smintian Apollo, the widely diffused wordship of ordinary mice, and such small deer, has been either wholly neglected, or explained by the first theory of symbolism that occurred to the conjecture of a civilized observer. The facts of savage animal worship, and their relations to totemism, seem still unknown to or unappreciated by scholars, with the exception of Mr. Sace, who recognizes totemism as the origin of the zoomorphic element in Egyptian religion. Our explanation, whether adequate or not, is not founded on an isolated case. If Apollo superseded and absorbed the worship of the mouse, he did no less for the wolf, the ram, the dolphin and several other animals whose images were associated with his own. The Greek religion was more refined and anthropomorphic than that of Egypt. In Egypt the animals were still adored, and the images of the gods had bestial heads. In Greece only a few gods, and chiefly in very archaic statues, had bestial heads, but beside the other deities the sculptor set the owl, eagle, wolf, serpent, tortoise, mouse, or whatever creature was the local favorite of the deity. 118a probably the deity head, in the majority of cases, superseded the animal and succeeded to his honors, but the conservative religious sentiment retained the beast within the courts and in the suit and service of the anthropomorphic god, 118b the process by which the god ousted the beasts may perhaps be observed in Samoa, there as Dr. Turner tells us in his Samoa each family has its own sacred animal, which it may not eat, if this law be transgressed, the malefactor is supernaturally punished in a variety of ways, but, while each family has thus its totem, four or five different families recognize, in owl, crab, lizard, and so on, incarnations of the same god, say of Tongo, if Tongo had a temple among these families, we can readily believe that images of the various beasts in which he was incarnate would be kept within the consecrated walls, savage ideas like these, if they were ever entertained in Greece, would account for the holy animals of the different deities, but it is obvious that the phenomena which we have been studying may be otherwise explained, it may be said that the Smintian Apollo was only revered as the enemy and opponent of mice, Saint Gertrude whose heart was eaten by mice has the same role in France, the worship of Apollo, and the badge of the mouse, would, on this principle, be diffused by colonies from some center of the faith. The images of mice in Apollo's temples would be nothing more than votive offerings. Thus, in the church of a Saxon town, the verger shows a silver mouse dedicated to Our Lady. This is the greatest of our treasures, says the verger. Our town was overrun with mice till the ladies of the city offered this mouse of silver. Instantly all the mice disappeared. And are you such fools as to believe that the creatures went away because a silver mouse was dedicated? Asked a Prussian officer. 
Mumba replied the verger, rather neatly, or long ago we should have offered a silver oppression. Star myths. Artemis Ward used to say that, while there were many things in the science of astronomy hard to be understood, there was one fact which entirely puzzled him. He could partly perceive how we weigh the Sunday and ascertain the component elements of the heavenly bodies, by the aid of spectrum analysis. But what beats me about the stars, he observed plaintively, is how we come to know their names. This question, or rather the somewhat similar question, how did the constellations come by their very peculiar names, has puzzled Professor Pritchard and other astronomers more serious than Artemis Ward. Why is a group of stars called the Bear, or the Swan, or the Twins, or named after the Pleiades, the fair daughters of the giant Atlas? These are difficulties that meet even children when they examine a celestial globe. There they find the figure of a bear, traced out with lines in the intervals between the stars of the constellations, while a very imposing giant is so drawn that Orion's belt just fits his waist. But when he comes to look at the heavens, the infant speculator sees no sort of likeness to a bear in the stars, nor anything at all resembling a giant in the neighborhood of Orion. The most eccentric modern fancy which can detect what shapes it will in clouds, is unable to find any likeness to human or animal forms in the stars, and yet we call a great many of the stars by the names of men and beasts and gods, some resemblance to terrestrial things, it is true, everyone can behold in the heavens, corona, for example, is like a crown, or, as the Australian black fellows know, it is like a boomerang and we can understand why they give it the name of that curious curved missile, the Milky Way. Again, does resemble a path in the sky, our English ancestors called it Waddling Street the path of the Waddlings, mythical giants and bushmen in Africa and red men in North America named it the Ashen Path, or the Path of Souls, the ashes of the path, of course, are supposed to be hot and glowing, not dead and black like the ash paths of modern running grounds. Other and more recent names for certain constellations are also intelligible. In Homer's time the Greeks had two names for the great bear, they called it the bear, or the wane, and a certain fanciful likeness to a wane may be made out. Though no resemblance to a bear is manifest. In the United States the same constellation is popularly styled the dipper, and everyone may observe the likeness to a dipper or toddy ladle. But these resemblances take us only a little way towards appellations. We know that we derive many of the names straight from the Greek, but whence did the Greeks get them? Some, it is said, from the Chaldeans, but whence did they reach the Chaldeans? To this we shall return later. But, as to early Greek star lore, Goge, the author of Loraging de Lois, a rather learned but too speculative work of the last century, makes the following characteristic remarks, the Greeks received their astronomy from Prometheus, this prince, as far as history teaches us made his observations on Mount Caucasus, that was the 18th century's method of interpreting mythology. The myth preserved in the Prometheus Bound of Aeschylus tells us that Zeus crucified the Titan on Mount Caucasus. The French philosopher, rejecting the supernatural elements of the tale, makes up his mind that Prometheus was a prince of a scientific bent, and that he established his observatory on the frosty Caucasus. But, even admitting this, why did Prometheus give the stars animal names? Gogay easily explains this by a hypothetical account of the manners of primitive men. The earliest peoples, he says, must have used writing for purposes of astronomical science. 
they would be content to design the constellations of which they wished to speak by the hieroglyphical symbols of their names, hence the constellations have insensibly taken the names of the chief symbols. Thus, a drawing of a bear or a swan was the hieroglyphic of the name of a star, or group of stars. But whence came the name which was represented by the hieroglyphic? That is precisely what our author forgets to tell us. But he remarks that the meaning of the hieroglyphic came to be forgotten, and the symbols gave rise to all the ridiculous tales about the heavenly signs. This explanation is attained by the process of reasoning in a vicious circle from hypothetical premises ascertained to be false. All the known savages of the world, even those which have scarcely the elements of picture writing, call the constellations by the names of men and animals, and all tell ridiculous tales to account for the names, as the star stories told by the Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, and other civilized people of the old world, exactly correspond in character, and sometimes even in incident, with the star stories of modern savages. We have the choice of three hypotheses to explain this curious coincidence. Perhaps the star stories, about nymphs changed into bears, and bears changed into stars, were invented by the civilized races of old, and gradually found their way amongst people like the Eskimo, and the Australians, and Bushmen, or it may be insisted that the ancestors of Australians, Eskimo, and Bushmen were once civilized, like the Greeks and Egyptians, and invented star stories still remembered by their degenerate descendants. These are the two forms of the explanation which will be advanced by persons who believe that the star stories were originally the fruit of the civilized imagination. The third theory would be, that the ridiculous tales about the stars were originally the work of the savage imagination, and that the Greeks, Chaldeans, and Egyptians, when they became civilized, retained the old myths that their ancestors had invented when they were savages. In favor of this theory it may be said, briefly, that there is no proof that the fathers of Australians, Eskimo, and Bushmen had ever been civilized, while there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that the fathers of the Greeks had once been savages, and, if we incline to the theory that the star myths are the creation of savage fancy, we at once learn why they are, in all parts of the world, so much alike. Just as the flint and bone weapons of rude races resemble each other much more than they resemble the metal weapons and the artillery of advanced peoples, so the mental products, the fairy tales, and myths of rude races have everywhere a strong family resemblance. They are produced by men in similar mental conditions of ignorance, curiosity, and credulous fancy, and they are intended to supply the same needs, partly of amusing narrative, partly of crude explanation of familiar phenomena. Now it is time to prove the truth of our assertion that the star stories of savage and of civilized races closely resemble each other. Let us begin with that well-known group the Pleiades. The peculiarity of the Pleiades is that the group consists of seven stars, of which one is so dim that it seems entirely to disappear, and many persons can only detect its presence through a telescope. The Greeks had a myth to account for the vanishing of the lost Pleiad. The tale is given in the Cadasterismoi stories of metamorphoses into stars attributed to Eratosthenes. This work was probably written after our era, but the author derived his information from older treatises now lost. According to the Greek myth, then, the seven stars of the Pleiad were seven maidens, daughters of the giant Elis. Six of them had gods for lovers, Poseidon admired two of them, Zeus three, and Ares one, but the seventh had only an earthly wooer. And when all of them were changed into stars, the maiden with the mortal lover hid her light for shame. Now let us compare the Australian story, 
according to Mr. Dawson Australian Aborigines, a writer who understands the natives well. Their knowledge of the heavenly bodies greatly exceeds that of most white people, and is taught by men selected for their intelligence and information. The knowledge is important to the Aborigines on their night journeys, so we may be sure that the natives are careful observers of the heavens, and are likely to be conservative of their astronomical myths. The lost Pleiad has not escaped them, and this is how they account for her disappearance. The Pertkopanu tribe have a tradition that the Pleiades were a queen and her six attendants. Long ago the crow our Canopus fell in love with the queen, who refused to be his wife. The crow found that the queen and her six maidens, like other Australian gins, were in the habit of hunting for white edible grubs in the bark of trees. The crow at once changed himself into a grub just as Jupiter and Indra used to change into swans, horses, ants, or what not and hid in the bark of a tree. The six maidens sought to pick him out with their wooden hooks, but he broke the points of all the hooks. Then came the queen, with her pretty bone hook, he let himself be drawn out, took the shape of a giant, and ran away with her. Ever since there have only been six stars, the six maidens, in the Pleiad, this story is well known, by the strictest inquiry, to be current among the blacks of the West District and in South Australia, Mr. Tyler, whose opinion is entitled to the highest respect, thinks that this may be a European myth, told by some settler to a black in the Greek form and then spread about among the natives. He complains that the story of the loss of the brightest star does not fit the facts of the case. We do not know, and how can the Australians know, that the lost star was once the brightest? It appears to me that the Australians, remarking the disappearances of a star, might very naturally suppose that the crow had selected for his wife that one which had been the most brilliant of the cluster. Besides, the wide distribution of the tale among the natives, and the very great change in the nature of the incidents, seem to point to a native origin, though the main conception the loss of one out of seven maidens is identical in Greek and in Murray. The manner of the disappearance is eminently Hellenic in the one case, eminently savage in the other. However this may be, nothing of course is proved by a single example. Let us next examine the stars Castor and Pollux. Both in Greece and in Australia these are said once to have been two young men, in the Cadasterismoi. Already spoken of, we read, the twins, or Dioscauroi, they were nurtured in Lacedaemon, and were famous for their brotherly love, wherefore, Zeus, desiring to make their memory immortal, placed them both among the stars, in Australia, according to Mr. Brocksmith and Origines of Victoria, Terry Castor and Wangel Pollux are two young men who pursue Peria and kill him at the commencement of the great heat, Kuner touring the mirage is the smoke of the fire by which they roast him. In Greece it was not Castor and Pollux, but Orion who was the great hunter placed among the stars, among the Bushmen of South Africa. Castor and Pollux are not young men, but young women, the wives of the island, the great native Antelope. In Greek star stories the great bear keeps watch. Homer says, on the hunter Orion for fear of a sudden attack. But how did the bear get its name in Greece? According to Hesiod, the oldest Greek poet after Homer, the bear was once a lady. Daughter of Lycaon, king of Arcadia, she was an inth of the train of chaste Artemis, but yielded to the love of, 